Hi everyone, welcome to Season 2 of the Asian Hustle Network Podcast, where we interview Asian entrepreneurs and professionals around the world. And for this season, we're going to take our conversations deeper about our Asian identity and hustle stories. We also want to announce that we are hosting our first ever Asian Hustle Network Uplifted Conference next spring in Las Vegas. For more info and to reserve your seats, check out our website at asianhustlenetwork.com. Don't forget to grab a copy of our recently released book, Uplifted, Journeys of Abundance, Community, and Identity, which tells the personal stories of how 21 Asian American entrepreneurs are shifting culture. You can order it on our website as well. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today we have a very special guest with us. Her name is Mai Kim Lee. Mai is a Vietnamese American who plunged into a new culture at the age of three after starting her journey traveling by boat from war-torn Vietnam to the U.S. She grew up in Seattle, Washington in the 80s at the height of the grunge culture and moved to sunny Anaheim, California before Fulapta was erected in Westminster. Mai's family finally settled in Lawrence, Massachusetts, which became her beloved childhood hometown. She graduated from Bowdoin College and Princeton University. She spent most of her 20s saving the world in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. She then gave all of that up for love and moved to Boston to be with her college best friend. Mai is the author of a new memoir, Worlds Apart, My Personal Life Journey Through Transcultural Poverty, Privilege, and Passion. This up-close and personal expose on everything Mai has felt under the skin plays a powerful role in her mission to amplify the Asian American voice and help people of all backgrounds come together in the face of their differences. Worlds Apart is available on Amazon and in select bookstores. A serial entrepreneur, Mai is currently the CEO and co-founder of Haystack DX, a medical device startup. She resides in Boston with her husband, three kids, and two furry friends. Mai, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, we're so excited to have my Kim Lay today in the podcast. She actually sent me her book. I don't know if you guys can see if you guys are not on YouTube, but if you guys are listening to the podcast, her book is is amazing. It definitely relates a lot to my own personal life as a Vietnamese American immigrant. I believe you can find her book on Amazon as well. Please look out for Worlds Apart. We'll include that in the show notes. But my welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Brian, for having me here. I'm so of excited. Course. We're excited. At least I'm very excited to have you here on the podcast today because our experiences as a Vietnamese immigrant here in America has been very similar, except you went the other direction and I went the other direction. <laughs> yes, yeah. We're parallel universe. And um, yes, we went to the same cities and yeah. now we're here in the same network. Definitely, definitely. I, kinda, I don't want to take too much away, but I'll just kind of take over now and talk a little bit more about your story, about how your parents immigrated from Vietnam over here and what was your first experience like here in the States? Gosh, um, you know, like so many members of Asian um, Hustle Network, we came from nothing. We left a country because of the war after the war ended and my parents tried really hard to escape. So they, you know, they got caught um, a few times, um, but my dad um, was persistent. He 
was he wanted to make sure we made it out. And one of the things that was really, really still really hits me hard is that when I ask him, there's a 50% chance that you would die. Would you have done it? He's like, absolutely for freedom, for peace. And he did it. He's like, I knew that if I take you, that you will never, you might not survive or I might not survive. And he took that risk and he, you know, organized this whole escape for a large number of people, about 30 to 40 people. And he, it was like, it was like a Jackie Chan movie. He would secretly tell them codes on when to, you know, meet him and where to meet him. And no one can say anything because he didn't want the Vietcong to, um, sorry, I said in Vietnamese, but Vietcong to know where people are or what chatter was there. You know, back then, luckily there was no like social media or, or, or emails or text to monitor that, but he would like give them code words to have a location, a time and to meet there. If you didn't make it at that time, he had to leave. He couldn't wait too long. And so on his first escape, he was waiting for me and my mom to meet him and the whole crew. We never showed up. So he left without us. He made it to sea. He made it to close to Thailand. We, my mom was disappointed. She returned back to the village with me. And uh, somehow she, um, a lot of people were talking about that. They thought that he left us for another woman, but he actually just couldn't be there and waited for us because he didn't want to put the whole crew at risk. When he got to, when he got to sea, he was just thinking about us, but ultimately, you know, he was caught by um, the victim and return, um, was thrown in jail. And escaped jail and came to get us and planned another escape. And uh, that second escape was when we were able to make it to America. That escape uh, was tough. Uh, we were at sea and uh, were attacked by Thai pirates. I almost lost my ear at that point because I was wearing these gold earrings. And because of that, I'm kind of like uh, obsessed with earrings and I'm always wearing different earrings. But yeah, we made it, got to Thailand and then Indonesia, Seattle. And from then on, my, my trajectory has changed. That is an amazing story. And based on that story, I'm wondering if we're talking about the same person. Because <laughs> I, I just, I don't know why, as you're telling that story, it occurred to me that my uncle was the one planning these escapes too in Vietnam. And same story. He got caught. He got thrown into jail. He actually got his his butt whooping in prison. He oh actually, my God. He, like, he lost all his teeth, right? So like, oh gosh. they beat the crap oh. out of him. He lost all his teeth. And when we talked to him, he lost all metal teeth, like all gold and metal. And he's talking about like, this is probably the best thing that happened to him because he doesn't, he doesn't have to go to the dentist at an older age. And, and guess what? He gets to eat with gold in his mouth. So it's like... I mean, he's, he's like hanging with everyone else, you know, all yeah. the rappers, Glow and Silver. Yeah, like they... I, so oh when you're... God. I don't know if you're, it's just the same person or we really, if we just found on this podcast that we we're related. So it's like, wait a minute. Are you oh, my cousin? Oh, oh gosh. Should we do a DNA test and find out that we actually are related? No. I, I think there's so many heroes out there that are very similar. And one of the things I love about Asian Hustle Network was when people post about their stories. I'm like, oh my God, that's like my story. And I think we all come from the same place, whether it's like from Vietnam or China or what, it doesn't matter, but like we have similar stories that are yeah. relatable. And I, gosh, I give it to you, to your uncle. He, it, it's, it's tough. Yeah. Um, I have to tell you a funny story. Sure. Um, there is some random person, uh, someone I don't know at all read my book and they thought of my dad as a hero. He's like, wow. He's like that Jackie Chan who jumped out of a two-story prison and ran into a village to get me and my mom and then planted this other escape. And then she drove by recently and seeing my dad, this frail man, this old elderly man cutting my lawn 
in the fall. And she calls someone up and like, I thought he looked, he was supposed to be a hero. He looked so different. He just looked like some ordinary person that you would just overlook, you know, like those Asian men who walk in the street. Those are the people who actually made a difference and who brought all of us here, like your uncle. Yeah, it's about the heart, really. And we can't judge a book by his cover. You know, there's a lot of brain power and strategy and planning that goes into escape. It's not easy. It's not like, hey, guys, I'm going to take a vacation, you know, like people's lives are at stake. It is like insane. Can you imagine yourself escaping at this age, trying to plan and take all of us I, with I you? I absolutely cannot, especially going to a country I've never been before and not being able to speak the language or not knowing where I'm going to sleep, wake up, if I'm going to be alive. Props to our parents' generation for making that trip for us because I don't think that, at least from my speaking for myself, I'm not capable of doing that, right? So huge props to them and, and for people out there who are, you know, there's the immigrant problem is immigration and escape right now is still very real. We see that around the world, especially with the, I don't want to get so political, but you know, earlier last year too, it's like, we see a repeat of like Vietnam, which is like, holy moly, like this is still going on like 20, 30 years later. Right. No, I, um, actually I've been helping a group of Afghanis in Boston. I was just before this, um, you know, getting on this call with you, I took a a young Afghani woman around Marshall's and TJ Maxx just so that she can spend some time outside her apartment, her host family and experience it. And she shared her story with me. It's very similar and it's very devastating because she's separated from her family. Her mom is still in in Kabul. And so she, it's hard. And the hard part is not the physical, it's the mental. It is. It is. Oh, man, so relatable. Even my parents made like pretty big donations too. Yeah. Uh, just to help out the situation because we've been there before, right? And just to reshift the story back to on yourself. So you made your way to Seattle. And I would imagine there's a huge cultural shock that you face in terms of like, yeah. who am I? I'm Asian. I I feel like in your story, at least when you wrote, it was like you felt a little bit singled out. Like walk us through that time period of your life about discovering your identity. But the one thing I really appreciate about your story is that you didn't reject being Asian. You accepted it, right? Oh, Which I feel like yeah. a lot of people reject themselves at that point if they feel like a social outcast. No, I. that's a very good point. And Every individual has their their story, and some wouldn't accept being Asian. I I embrace it. I love being Vietnamese. I'm so Vietnamese in a lot of ways that my husband's like, oh my god, your whole wall, like my wall is all Vietnamese art. Um, this one is from Hoi An um, by a Vietnamese artist, and I embrace it. But it comes with you got to be ready for all the rejection, the negativity, the slurs, everything. Um, That didn't bother me as much. I think it was being on the peripheral of society. And even as an entrepreneur now, you know, people pause because I'm so different. So coming to Seattle, that was in the 80s. I'm so, it's so scary to say 80s because it's so, it seems so far away. And for the millennials, I'm like, don't say that. I'm like a dinosaur. But back then, Imagine like uh, this Vietnamese family in Seattle when it was grunge and punks and everyone had the style back then was like mohawks and everything. It was not only culturally shocking, but the weather in Seattle, as you know, is very different from Vietnam and the rain was hard for my parents. I thought it was amazing. I'm like, wow, there are cherry trees, there are rainbows. When it, it was like, yeah, like oh, Seattle's not like torrential rain like Boston. It has like that that mistiness 
where when it's um, when the sun comes out, it gives you that really those glimmering colors. So for me as a kid, I was like, wow, this is like I'm a unicorn in this universe and to see everything seems so perfect. But for my parents, it was hard. I think it was traumatic. They had just to get to Seattle was already hard, but just because they were focused on surviving, it didn't hit them yet. And the moment that they let their guard down and they think about how they got there, that's when things hit them. They were reliving their experience, not just once, but twice, but three times, every time they would wake up with nightmares or whatnot. I, I was blissful to all that. I, I accepted my life as a refugee, as an immigrant in a new country. It seemed fine. And you know, we lived in off of King Street near there in, in Seattle. Oh, funny enough, I was just in Seattle in August and the streets are in Vietnamese. I was so shocked. I was amazed how like- Wait, which part of Seattle was this? Is this near um, Brenton this, area? This is in the Chinatown area. Oh, Chinatown. King so Street for us that. that don't, aren't familiar with Seattle, where is the Chinatown area in Seattle? Oh gosh, um, my, my map, my GP. Yes, it's not working perfectly, but it's in the it's um if you're in Seattle, you'll know where Chinatown is. And when you get to that area, it's a lot of like it's the old Chinatown. It's not the new one. Okay. Um we have a lot of Vietnamese sandwich shops there now. Um the names of the streets are in Vietnamese now, as well as in English. Um, but back then it's in the center. You'll see you'll be able to get to Pike's Place easily. Um, so it's not too far from Pike's Place. But I also grew up in White Center, which is uh, which was really rough back then in the 80s. I think it's a little bit better now. Okay. Um, but um, so I think for me, it was I felt like it was normal. But for my parents, it wasn't so normal, but they didn't think about the differences. They just thought that it was OK. This is as long as they're safe and they have a place and they have some food of some sort and some job to help them get through, then they're fine. And then, um, you know, the weather was just so hard that they we moved to Southern California when um, Footloft Hall was just starting to build up. It wasn't even there when I arrived in SoCal. And uh, they they moved down there because one, the weather, they heard there's a huge Vietnamese community. They needed a place to feel accepted. So that's why they moved down there. And the second thing is because the weather was so beautiful and they heard that it's nice that they need to escape all that rain and drizziness and cloudiness in Seattle. Um, and they thought it would be the best place. They moved down there and it was even tougher than Seattle. They oh, worked wow. um, picking strawberries and my father worked at uh, Knott's Berry Farm as a security officer. They so close at a garment factory and I helped them with that. And do you know how, like just to make a shirt, like a collar shirt was like 25 cents, I think back then. And so they had to make a ton of them. And if they screw up, that means redoing it. And so I was helping them kind of un unstitching all the, if the stitches were bad or removing buttons and for them to redo it. So it's, it was really hard. And I think they also decided to leave California because they were barely making it in Cali. And there were a lot of home raids in our area. And they're like, okay, maybe we should go east. And back then, um, they just heard that East Coast was where all the education was and it's a better place to raise their children. But without any Google back then, they just went east without any idea where they were going and what city they would end up in. And that's how I ended up in the Boston area. Wow, that's an amazing, that's, that's absolutely amazing story. Man, it just comes back to like the hustle that our parents have to go through in order to make things work. And again, very similar to my story, at least. But before I get there, I want to clarify that Fulop Ta is 
Westminster in, in Orange County, California. For you guys are, are unfamiliar, that's also known as Little, Little Saigon in the Southern California area. Extremely Vietnamese, best Vietnamese food, like best pho, all, like everything out there. They have like an Asian yes. as well. <laughs> Yeah. And you know, I didn't even have to learn how to speak English because I was living there. And in fact, when I came to the East Coast, I didn't know how to read and I was in fourth grade. I didn't know how to speak English. And so everyone's like, how can you be in, in America for this long? It was like probably like 10, oh, close to 10 years. And they're like, why aren't you speaking English? I'm like, because I, I didn't need to. I had my community. My I, I could I could attest to that. That is absolutely true. <laughs> 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 so when I went to college, I had a Vietnamese, a strong Vietnamese accent. And when I went back after college, my friends were like, where is your accent, Mai? What happened to it? I'm like, I still have an accent somewhere there. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's, that's crazy how like your parents, I mean, obviously like when you're struggling, you have to follow where all, where all the opportunities are. And I think Fortunately, it did bring you to Boston. I think Boston is a great place. You're absolutely right. It's great for education. Like everyone there is highly educated. But I know you mentioned in your book that when you moved to Boston, you were pretty unhappy about that move, right? Yeah. I mean, as a kid, you know, California was amazing. It, we lived near Disneyland. I heard the fireworks and saw the fireworks daily. I never went to Disneyland because we couldn't afford it. And then it was sunny. I wore shorts. I It was just so... It was magical in California as a kid and coming to Boston everything seemed so old there were brick buildings it was cold and frigid I didn't where, where did you guys end up in Boston was it Dorchester no 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 so we we didn't we landed in, at Logan and then we went to Worcester which is in central mass in the middle of Massachusetts so we lived there for a bit and then my mom was looking for jobs she applied to the um, USPS the um, to deliver mail and actually in fact I've been telling all the Afghani refugees apply to USPS. We have a shortage of it. You're going to stabilize your life like mine and you should do it. So I'm going to help a bunch of them apply to become postal workers. But in any case, when my mom was in Worcester, she was working in factories and you know, someone recommended that she apply to the post office. She did. She scored high and she had two places to, that she could uh, select from. One was this nice town, very white, very wealthy, uh, well, wealthy enough, called Shrewsbury, or the other, Lawrence, which was the number one car theft city in the U.S. at that time. And she's like, you know what? We're going to Lawrence. That's where our people are. We don't know what it means, but we will feel comfortable there. People will accept us. And that's where we ended up. So Lawrence is 30 minutes outside of Boston. Oh, wow. That is, yeah, I, I definitely heard of Lawrence. Nowadays, it's, it's fine, but... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you heard of Lawrence? <laughs> yeah, I mean, back then, yes. Uh, I mean, I mean, just yeah, gentrification I, I, definitely play play a part in all these changes, but yeah. yeah. I think Trump, when he came to New England, he mentioned Lawrence where the, that's where all the opiates happen. Oh, no. <laughs> we have a bad rap, unfortunately. Uh, and even to this day, so I live in Brookline, which is um, a block away from Boston. Um, I'm a mile away from Fenway Park. And people ask me now, how does a girl from Lawrence end up in Brookline? And I tell them I stole a lot of cars. <laughs> and I mean, they actually believe me. I mean... I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad I'm glad you found a home in the Boston area. I think Boston is a fantastic city. It's very culture, as I mentioned earlier, also very educated. So let's go to your college experience. And this is, I would say this part of your book is kind of juicy because you were discovering not only your identity, but your sexuality as well. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh gosh i know okay, you, so you mentioned like all the flings and going to your college originally you didn't like going there and then you found your what passion is in paris but i don't want to take that too much away so i'll let you narrate that story <laughs> okay so i mean okay so as a you know, I was supposed to be that good girl, that Vietnamese, you know, I had my my parents, you know, wanted me to be that respectable, respectable, you know, elder child who covers herself up, who only focuses on studying. And after only I do well, then I can focus on guys or girls or whatever it is that I most preferentially for them was would be guys. And so, you know, I was I had my I had cultural uh, societal within my my community to do well uh, to represent. You know, I'm coming from Lawrence, going to college, so I I need to make it work. And they had expectations of me of that I couldn't live up to because I had my own expectations. I wanted to be me. So there was a struggle there. So I went, you know, I went to Bowdoin College, which is in Brunswick, Maine. It's kind of far. Not many people know about it unless you're in New England elsewhere, though Netflix co-founder Netflix founder is from Bowdoin and a ton of other people. But it's a great college. I didn't want to go there, but they gave me the most money. And my parents are like, we're working three full-time jobs. We can't send you anywhere else. This is where you're going. I want to either go to Brown or Tufts or anywhere else, a big city where there's a large Vietnamese or Asian community where I can connect to. So I ended up at a college where it was mostly white. And it was hard, first of all, socially and culturally. I came from a poor neighborhood outside of Boston, going to a very wealthy, rich school that where people were from private schools or were able to vacation in the Alps or whatnot. And I couldn't relate to them, but I started to kind of explore myself. I'm like, okay, I'm not this person who is that the traditional Vietnamese girl. I I'm loud, but I was forced to be quiet. And I was trying to experiment with that. I started to communicate and to voice myself and to explore in many ways from dating to taking English courses, which I wasn't supposed to or didn't expect to because I was supposed to go into medicine or science or math, math. And I was doing things that I loved, but was hard. And I made a lot of mistakes along the way. I thought I, for example, one, one mistake was I thought I wanted to be with an Asian person. So I only, um, I was trying to date Asian and because I thought they could relate to me and understand me. But I realized that there was a disconnect. It wasn't about my color or my race or my culture. It was about who can relate to me. And it ended up being a white man, unfortunately, um, not unfortunately, but it ended up being a white man who was an immigrant who I actually understood that I need to help my parents ultimately when I, after I work, I need to be able to help my family, my siblings and an Asian who wouldn't support that wouldn't be someone who I can be with, for example. Uh, yeah, it was, I, it's I, very it's multidimensional. <laughs> it's tough, but I college was a place for me to make mistakes 
for me to break free, for to try new things that wasn't expected of me. And I allowed that to happen. And it was hard because I got some backlash from my parents, from the, my community, but I, it was the best thing that happened to me. Well, that is, I think you bring a really good point too. It's about who you can relate to. And I can appreciate that. That is really good reasoning for me, at least. Uh, as long as it's not like racially motivated in any way, <laughs> which, yeah, which no. I feel like things are nowadays. I think as long as you feel <laughs> yeah. like that person's battle with you, it doesn't matter what race they are or their background. It's like they vibe with you. Right. And that's really important. Yeah. yeah. I, I think the way I, so my value is uh, imagine if you took away, you were blindfolded you took away all the colors and the race and the culture. Who can you relate to? That's one. And similarly, if I were in, as in my position hiring people, who will be the best person to do the job, regardless of where you went to school, what you did and what you do? Who is going to have that grit and perseverance to do the things? So that's the way I look at life and I look at people. I don't care what color you are, where you come from, what can you do and how can you relate to me? Definitely. I absolutely agree with that statement a lot. And another statement that I really liked that you brought up is college is a time for us to make mistakes. I like that statement a lot because I was kind of taught the opposite way, right? Yeah. I was taught, my, my mom was told me, you can do whatever you want after college. As long as you get, <laughs> as long as you get straight A's, whatever, do your engineering degree or doctor degree or whatever it is. For me, it was, it was engineering. She's like, as long as you get straight A's, like afterwards, you party as hard as you want, do the hell you want. I don't, I don't care because this is my mandate for you to like, quote unquote, be successful and be happy. Right. So I really like the fact that you are mentioning that college is a time. And I know part of the listeners might be in a younger range as well, particularly for this podcast. And I really want them to hear that too, because I think that you have to allow yourself to experience new experiences, open your mind to a lot of things. Because when in college, like the best time to be around like-minded people, to learn more about their experience, to, to see the world differently. And yeah, I think that's part of my biggest regret too in my own personal life was I stuck to my own circle. I only hung around people who like to study hard because my mom's like, don't be too distracted, you know? <laughs> um, no, allow the distractions because you never find your passion without those distractions and you never know where it will lead you. I wouldn't say don't stop at college, allow yourself to continue to explore and make those mistakes. Even in my age, I'm doing it. I still don't know who I am sometimes. Um, and I'm taking on new things that I've, that people were like, where, what are you doing with your life? I'm like, I'm writing a script, for example, just because I love it and I want to do it. I have no idea where it will take me. Just allow where, what you want to do and do it. Absolutely. And for you guys who are still in college, and I apologize to my other audience from the past college already, that <laughs> learning doesn't stop after college. It, it's a lifelong thing. You always learn more about yourself. The thing is like, you can always redefine yourself at any part of your life if you're unhappy, right? You're not stuck to the person you are. You can always redefine yourself. Yes, that's interesting that you said that because when I wrote the book during COVID last year, and somehow just sitting down and letting my heart pour out onto paper, 
allow me to discover who I was and who I am and who I want to be. And people who have read the book, like, wow, how did you know that back then? I'm like, actually, I didn't know back then what I was going through. And I, I, I wouldn't have been able to articulate it. It's not until you stop and reflect and listen to yourself and listen to others. And through that, you're only able to connect the dots. And so I think we're always learning and maybe tomorrow I'll learn something different about myself that I didn't know about. Uh, yeah, I absolutely agree. And Steve Jobs says that uh, it's always easy to connect the dots going backwards and connect the dots going forward. Sometimes yes. uh, you just have to trust your gut and what the, the right decision is, right? Because no one, let's be honest here, like no one really knows what you're doing in life. And no matter how successful you see the person is or how well put together put together they are, no one really knows what the heck they're doing. <laughs> That's oh the honest God. truth. Um, that is all about my book. It's about on the surface, we might either look like we're messed up or we are perfect. And But behind that facade, there's so much more about that person. Like yeah. I might look like I'm perfect. I have it together, but my life is not perfect. It's far from perfect. I have a lot of issues. I have a lot of baggage. I'm struggling mentally trying to build a startup even though on paper it's going well, but you know, it's hard to get something moving and going. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good segment to talk a little bit, talk a little bit about your, your company too, and your startup experience, because statistically venture capital money is, I believe is like last year or something like 2.3% of all venture capital money goes to women of color. And it's something that I feel like needs to be changed a lot in this field, but like, how has your startup experience and running a company and raising money, how has that sort of clashed with your initial traditional beliefs? And the reason why I want to bring this up is because I feel like for a lot of founders of immigrant backgrounds, it's actually very hard for us to go out there and ask for money because it's not something that we're taught to do, right? practically rude in most Asian cultures. It is so rude. I I think for a long time, I've been an entrepreneur for a long time, nearly a decade. And the early startups I've done, I couldn't raise money because I was so afraid. I couldn't go and ask someone for money. I felt like I owed them something and I felt like I wasn't good enough to take that. I think that was my biggest barrier to building a company. Even though I was able to get companies to, you know, to revenue and do things, but, and to, to have an impact, it, it was just, I couldn't scale it because I didn't have the funding that I needed. This startup in particular, something changed. It's a medical device startup called Haystack DX. I have no science or medical background. So I already make people pause there alone. Um, so that not only do I make it harder for people to invest in me because I'm Asian and a woman, I don't have the experience in this field. But somehow, you know, my colleagues who recruited me and say, come and take our research and do something. They're like, we're going to take a risk on you. We know you've done other things and we believe that you can do something amazing with this. And I'm like, I don't know if I can do something amazing. I don't know anything about your field. And when I jumped in and took that leap, I'm like, oh shit, pardon my French. I'm like, how do I do this? They gave me medical books and I'm like, my mind is like blowing up from like all these terminology and I couldn't remember what I just read. But during, so I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I decided to just try and just to learn as much as I could without much guidance and some, and a lot of guidance. So it's like on my own, but with people and resources around if I needed it. I 
decided to, okay, I, I can't get, take this any further unless I raise some money. And I decided to go for this $15,000 grant. Um, the beauty of science is that there are grants everywhere. And, but that required me to have a perfect five minute pitch in front of everyone. And luckily it was on Zoom. Okay, so it's five minutes. I don't need to stand in front of everyone, but everyone was on Zoom. I'm like, okay, how do I do it exactly five minutes? I practice and practice and practice. I did it, got $15,000. I'm like, woohoo, what do I do with that? <laughs> can't really build much. I know, I'm like, I can't really build much or can't do anything. That was my first uh, step. And somehow I was able to build take my co-founders research and build something that was uh, something that was impossible that most manufacturers said that's impossible to do. I did it in two months with $15,000 that led to all this interest. And I think I just did it by showing by doing rather than showing myself. I just said, here's it is. And uh, some investors like, there's no way you did that. I showed it to them. They're like, Oh, you did that. I think that alone just gave them the confidence I could do it. And from then on, I went out and pitched. And pitching was hard. I didn't want to pitch. I didn't want to raise money. I didn't want to ask anyone any for anything. I don't want to owe people anything. And it was hard every time I pitched and they said, no, it was like a sting, a bee sting. And I felt it. And I'm like, oh gosh, I, better, I, I can't do this. But after many bee stings, it felt like my, my skin was getting like tougher. And it started to, the nose started to roll down my skin like oil. And the minute I felt that, it was during the summer of 2020. I was like, wow, was it 2020? Yeah, 2020. I was like, wow, I can do this. And I went out and I didn't care. I'm like, come, come at me. T tell me the no's. And that's when I was able to raise close to a million dollars, actually over a million dollars with grants and funding. And I just pushed my team to, hey, you better get, you better deliver because we're going for a series A this year. I need to be able to show that I can do this in the shortest amount of time with very little money, even if I have to pull all nighters for six months or more. And that's what we did. And I'm going to start raising a series A. And only then I think you have to experience it to be able to go and do it. And we have all these fears. And I think just go and run, fall, fall all the time, fall as many times as you need to, to get there. Definitely. You should fall and fall hard because at the end of the day, you realize that a lot of people's opinions don't matter and don't affect you. All you yes. need is one, right? And all you need really is your own self-belief in yourself that you can do it. And you're proving to yourself, especially because it's a you versus you situation to prove that you can make the impossible happen, right? And that through sheer willfulness, strategy, and resourcefulness, like a lot of things can happen in a small budget. And that's the beauty I love about like founders that don't have experience in the particular field because we're not contained by walls. We're not contained by like too much knowledge that we kind of walk into your like ignorance of bliss kind of thing where it's like, yeah. what? You, what do you mean I can't do that? You know? <laughs> um, you know, so, so something funny yesterday, um, Mike, so I'm co-writing a script based off of the book. And I've been, you know, this is my first time doing it. And my co-writer's like, the reason why I love working with you is you have no ego. And similar to founders who have don't, don't have the experience, they're willing to do anything to make it work. And so for anyone, I say, don't have that ego. Let's set it aside because you make it work ultimately 
just know what your goals are. Um, your goal is to do the best that you can. And in order to do that, you, you can't have an ego. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I still, I still dwell in the, the 15K story about making things happen and using that as momentum to raise a million. And it kind of reminds me of like the early days of Asian Hustle Network. We actually hosted nine events without a single dollar in our budget. We have asking people to do pro bono without a naiveness that actually events cost a lot of money to throw, right? Yeah. And now that we, we know too much, it's like we're finally putting on our first event in Las Vegas that's like legit, right? With like sponsors and deals and everything. But like never like, oh, wow, like it actually costs a lot of money to host these events. How we do like nine across the world, like pro bono, it's like, it's insane, right? Um, it's insane. Well, yeah. I can't wait for this event to have in Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's coming up to uh, kick off Asian Heritage Month, uh, April 28th and 29th. So yeah, that's that, that, me. Yeah, I, I love your, yeah, I love that, that story. And I love the fact that you guys are going for your series A. I think my personal beliefs is that I need, I want to see more women and color leaders out there. I want to have these type of podcasts, these kind of conversations to tear down that wall because there's a lot of work to be done with our community regarding like the startup world and whatnot. Uh, so I do commend you for that. So I want to ask a few questions regarding how you take care of everything, right? And what I mean by that is like, how do you take care of being a startup founder, an author, a parent? And for this answer, I, I do want you to be as honest as possible. Like tell us like what's working, what doesn't work because we don't learn a lot of things by, by having you share the highlight of everything, right? We learn a lot by having you share lows and, and the highs so we can relate to each other as human beings. Yeah, no, um, thank you for that question. It's, um, it's timely. I, on the surface, I have it all. You know, I have, I, I, I have, I publish a book. I run a really great startup with amazing scientists and medical and doctors. I have a team that is phenomenal, but it comes at a cost, cost to relationships, cost to my health all that. So, you know, you can do it all, but something's got to give basically. I don't sleep. So I was building this startup last year. Um, we got funding. We, we kicked it off in February, 2021. And my family was going through some tough times and I started writing a book in February that required, how do I do, how do I raise three kids, two dogs, make a husband satisfied and my colleagues in work and write a book. I mean, it meant either one hour to two hours of sleep, maximum three hours. So for a long time, I only slept between one and three hours. So I looked like a zombie most of the time, but I was able to do everything. I mean, the world would be amazing if we had more than 24 hours, right? But yeah, so my health came was, it took the back burner. I didn't sleep and I completed the book. I started in February, I completed it at the end of April. I ended up with health problems. I couldn't understand why as a runner who has my resting heartbeat is about 52. And I climbed one flight of stairs and it was a hundred and something. It wouldn't stop eating. So I went to the ER and they're like, you have an anxiety attack. I couldn't calm it down. I did everything, drank wine, um, watched net, binge on Netflix, turned off the t computer, my, my phone, nothing helped. And 
I had to take, uh, they prescribed some, you know, some meds to help calm my anxiety. And I slowed down for a month and then came back. I'm like, okay, I can't really slow down that much. I can't binge every single Netflix um, series, but that was my only way to, I basically crashed in May and then came back and started strong again. At the same time, you know, I, you know, while working so much and focus on doing all these amazing things, because I love, I love building things. I, I don't like the end results. Like I publish a book. I'm like, okay, so what, what's next? It's not the end. It's not the publishing that drives me. It's the process. And in doing those, I kind of get wrapped in into doing it. Like, for example, now I'm writing a script and I'm wrapped into writing a script while raising series A and preparing for that. I lose sight of family and friends. And sometimes I'm not there um, mentally, emotionally for them. I'm there physically, but if something happens to them, I'm always there, but they want me to be more present. And I don't know what's it like to be present. Um, I'm always thinking about the future or thinking about just doing and getting to the future. So it comes out of costs and I'm trying to figure out that balance right now. And that's why, you know, we mentioned earlier, we're always learning about ourselves and discovering new things. I'm trying to discover how to find that, you know, to be able to do the things I want to do with passion, but be able to be there for people who want me to be there. Yeah, that is is definitely really, really deep. And thank you so much for sharing your vulnerability with us. I think a lot of us try to hide those things, right? You want to be as strong as possible. We wanted to portray ourselves a certain way, but I think it's good for us to hear that side of you and hear the side of entrepreneurship that it does come with a cost sometimes of your mental health or your health or relationships. I'm not saying that's the best approach per se, and this is no attack to you, but I'm saying like, this is what goes on with our lives that you only see the best things, right? When when people look at you and like, oh, you have it all together. Why are you going through these problems, right? But as entrepreneurs, as hustlers, like as human beings, we all go through our subset of problems that we try to figure out every day of like, what is our true potential? What is our purpose? What is this and that? Those are questions that it's pretty funny because you really think about it. Those are questions that you think you have it solved by like ex- like at a certain age, right? But then that never goes away. You're always trying to understand your purpose in life and what you stand for, who you are. So it's really important for us to like take some time to discover ourselves, to find our true passion, do things that don't feel like work, which is our true passion, obviously. And just put ourselves out there and, and experience these things and listen to stories too, because a lot of times we keep these thoughts to ourselves. We don't share it to anyone. And the worst part is like, I must be off. I must be weird. I must be not okay because no one else is around me is feeling this way. Why do I feel this way? Right. But once you get, once you get people to share their story, it's like, oh, unfortunately and unfortunately, everyone goes through the same sort of the same things on a daily basis at all stages of life. So that's, yes. that's yeah, that's that. That's I love. I love the Asian Hustle Network. You guys have the space for us to share the story. And for so long, we're inhibited from doing that because it's not in our culture. Um, it's kind of shamed upon whatever we feel, whatever we go through, it should be locked up, throw away or swept under the rug. And I don't want that anymore. And that's the same way I felt about college. I don't want to hold that in. I want to be myself. I want to voice voice my story. I want others to learn to not make the same mistake. Absolutely. Absolutely. So my, so we have one final question and that question is what's next for you? What are your goals for 2022? We're um, still in the first part of it. So what are your goals for the rest of the year? 
I feel like uh, January 1st, the year's over, right? No, <laughs> because I've already mapped out my whole year. No, no, we have a lot of, I, I'm, I'm working on this amazing project that I mentioned. Um, I'm writing a script based off of the book. It's uh, kind of like a sort of like a Jackie Chan, you know, escape story with drama and comedic relief, but not a refugee story, not an immigrant story alone, but about the feelings of, you know, isolation, mental health, trying to be who we are, trying to persevere through challenging times. Um, so I've been writing that since September and I'm trying to wrap that up and I will start pitching that along with my series A for Haystack. And hopefully we can get something together to make a movie about Asianness. So that's what I'm hoping for in 2022. That's awesome. We need, we definitely need more repetition out there, especially in mainstream media. I feel like last year was a great year for Asian Americans, but we can't just stop there, right? We need to continue pushing forward and getting more repetition out there. But um, how can our listeners find out more about you and reach out to you online? They can go to my website at mykimlay.com. That's M-A-I-K-I-M-L-E.com. And you'll find all my contact info there. Awesome. We'll include that in the show notes. Uh, and my thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. We can't wait to see where you are at the end of the year and many years from now. So thank you so much for helping the podcast today. No, yeah, Well, thank you for inviting me and I wish you a happy year of the tiger. Um, may your, may this year be healthy, happy, and you know, prosperous for you. Thank you so much, Mai. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.